Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. Let's face it, the future is now. We're living in a connected cyber society, and we need to stop ignoring it or pretending that it's not affecting us. Join us as we explore how humanity arrived at this current state of digital reality and what it means to live amongst so much technology and data. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com. And here we go. This is Redefining Society podcast, and I'm really excited about this conversation as usual. And lately, that we don't do the audio only anymore, but we also have the YouTube channel, which is starting to get pretty popular. So I'm excited about it. Not much to see, uh, you know, about me, but you know, you can look at our guests. We have also a, a, a dog, and, and my dog is always present in the back. And we may have some other surprise uh, dog visit coming in. I heard. Uh, but without further ado, this conversation is, again, about redefining society with technology. Um, we don't know what comes first. You know, is it technology driving society? Is it society driving technology? Who knows? Uh, we'll try to figure it out today. And we're talking in particular to um, of uh, technology that goes in the cockpits of our plane. And uh, that's something that if you travel, you may be interested to hear this story and how it does affect our society, the way we travel, the way we connect with the world and, and so forth. So I'm going to start with a round here of introduction, which is not coming from me because I will absolutely mess it up. We're going to start with Yamaya here, Yamaya, and uh, um, a little bit about yourself and then please pass the ball to Deborah and Anna here on the show, and then we start rolling the conversation. Awesome. Awesome. Hey, thanks so much for having us. We are really excited to be here. I'm Yumaya Bourdain. I am president at Dedalian. I'm here with Debbie and Anna. I'll, my background is in um, safety critical avionics. I was previously at Intel Corporation, been at Dedalian last few months, and just been having an absolute blast since joining. I'll pass it over to our co-founder, the, the lady of the company, um, Anna. Hi, thank you very much, Yamaya. Uh, I'm Anna Chernova. Um, I was trained initially as a physicist, and then I was working for Google for a while, and during the lunch break and before my work uh, in Mountain View office, I decided to start flying because that was the nearest thing to the office, actually, in the, the Palo Alto airport. And I went to a super nice, super small flight school, which was called Serious Aviation, and the people there taught others how to fly helicopters. Uh, so I started in around 2011, and at that point it was complete, um, a complete hobby. I had no idea why I'm doing that, apart from I knew it was difficult and complex in comparison with typing on the uh, computer every day. Uh, that was something quite challenging, but I thought, okay, let me just learn to hover, and that's probably why I'm going to stop. And then the next thing was, okay, let me try to fly solo, and this is why I'm going to stop. And then it turned out it's actually a useful thing to know about, and it changes also your perspective to the world, but we'll, we can talk about it later. So several years later, uh, a 
co-worker of mine who also worked at SpaceX in between working at Google in different countries. Uh, he found me as a helicopter pilot, which I became by that point. And he asked me whether I would be interested in um, uh, starting a company with him. So this is how our company uh, was created. Uh, and I was introduced as the human pilot whom we eventually gonna replace with a small shell script. Uh, but I think, uh, let me put this, uh, some suspense on the story now here, uh, and let's switch to Deborah for a while, because uh, that's another part of uh, the necessary thing to um, uh, replace the pilot, ability to run this small program on some hardware. Thank you, Anna. Uh, my name is Deborah Aubrey. I go by Debbie, so that's, uh, Yumaya and I have worked together for a while um, before she left Intel and since she's left Intel. Uh, Yumaya handed over to me uh, the aerospace business. So I'm the market development manager for the federal and aerospace market segment. And my particular focus is on the aerospace industry and uh, bringing Intel's uh, drive for democratization of silicon into the avionics industry. Wow, that's perfect. And I fly sometimes, but not piloting, so don't worry. <laughs> Uh, so <laughs> I, I will. I can go in so many different places, but you know we're gonna get a little technical and a little bit of you know sociological maybe because a lot of people, first of all, wonder when is the future arriving, and I often say you know um, the future is here. It depends what you expect <laughs> from it to do. Uh, I've talked to astronauts, I've talked to pilots, I've talked to security people in the, in the aviation industry, and they all say, you know, um, AI has been in the cockpit for a long time, automation and, and all of those beautiful things. And of course, the pilot still has a role. But let, let's go with where, where are we right now with artificial intelligence, machine learning, and all those beautiful things uh, in the cockpit? Like what, what? What is the status of the industry right now? And I don't know, Deborah. Maybe we want to start with you. Uh, well, today, of course, um, most of the aircraft flying are commercial aircraft that are going point to point over very long distances, and you typically see a pilot and a co-pilot both in the cockpit flying the aircraft, uh, and that's the state of the art today. And I think you understand, and it's in the news that. Our pilot population is aging out of service. And so they're getting older and the, the number of new pilots available to fly these aircraft is, is reducing. So we see ourselves in a uh, transition period, just on the near term sort of transition to try to reduce the workload on the pilots in the cockpit to perhaps drive towards a single pilot uh, navigating the aircraft, flying the aircraft, um, in order to deal with sort of the, the coming shortage of pilots. Uh, and then moving forward, we're looking towards, you know, the urban air mobility market. And that's really where Anna and Yamaya are coming into the picture here. All right, so come in the picture. Uh, <laughs> Yamaya, let's start yeah. with you, and then, and then we hear from the actual pilot. Uh, Anna. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Anna can give a really good, um, I think, take on on this from a perspective of why um, she co-founded the company and what the role of the company is. But in urban air mobility, you know, we're finding that one, as as Debbie stated, that there is this shortage. You see, there's shortage of pilots. Um, but in this use case, there's going to be an order of magnitude or more, maybe multiple orders of magnitude, more aircraft in the airspace. And so it's going to create quite a bit of density in an airspace that already in some cases is, is strained. Um, and where, you know, air traffic control is, is sometimes struggling to manage even the density of air, airspace today. So then you take that order of magnitude, couple orders of magnitude, and the problem becomes an even tougher problem. And so we believe that by increasing the automation of these systems toward autonomy, it'll end up being safer 
for the airspace um, where the aircraft are autonomous or fully automated. And, and the difference being whether there's a human fallback or no human fallback. And maybe and I, I can talk about, you know, yeah, this. And I was going to just maybe offer, you know, when we're talking about urban air mobility, you know, today the legacy aircraft are flying point to point between distance, you know, cities that are pretty far spread apart. But when we start talking about urban air mobility, we're talking about bringing that ability to um, use the airspace into our urban center. So now you're not just flying, you know, from Boston to tell LA, for example, here you're perhaps flying from you know, one regional airport to another. So like Phoenix to Tucson, or, or perhaps we have air ambulances in order to get people from, you know, the site of the accident or, or, you know, their site of injury to the hospital much more quickly. So that when we're talking about urban air mobility and the traffic congestion, now we're talking about air airplanes, air vehicles, sharing the space that we have automated cars sharing. And, and you know, you have light poles and, and all kinds of different obstructions. And so that's, you know, the context of that urban or air mobility um, challenge that we're, we're solving. So the, the, the Jetson, as a kid from the 70s, yeah. I'm still waiting for, for that. <laughs> but um, so in a way, and I'm going to pass the ball to, to Anna here. So th there is the perspective of security, piloting, and, and, and then there is the aspect of convenience, which come when we connect with society. And I don't know, I tried to fly a drone a few times and I just couldn't fly it anywhere unless I was in the desert. I'm in LA, pretty much is air, is airspace air everywhere. So it's like, nope, you can't fly here because this, because that. So thinking that there is going to be a lot of flying uh, larger drone around the city, it, it makes me think about, you know, the city of the future. But Anna, then there is the aspect of the pilot, security or flight. And, and some people, when we talk about autonomous or general intelligence or anything like that, the fear is, can we really trust computers to make the final decision? And should we always have a backup of a human uh -huh. there? So let's go there. So I actually, for myself, I came to such a conclusion uh, first on my first day, day of flying, then on my first day, day of solo, um, at the day of my uh, private pilot license exam, I basically, uh, from again and again at a different level, I, I came to exactly the same thought. There should be a machine who would do what I'm supposed to do much faster and much safer. Even though, of course, I'm the I'm I'm benefiting from the unbelievable freedom. Even though the airspace around is difficult, even though the my instructor, my examiner, he would raise his eyebrow any time I would deviate half a degree from the course because of the airspace, because of the noise, because flying over the birds in the San Francisco Bay Area for whatever reason. Uh, however, the ability to take off from Palo Alto and go land somewhere in the Kenyan, so it's another end of the spectrum from the commercial airlines. But uh, there are so many things which you need to take in account about the real world there. So, of course, I'm talking about the small helicopters which don't have too much instruments on them. So, essentially, we didn't even have a glass cockpit. It was just six-pack instrument with uh, extremely basic analog things which you are as a helicopter pilot you're not even supposed to look at most of the time so your information was mostly coming from the world outside of you and you knew when you're landing you are supposed to have the uh, slow walk speed which guarantees that you're in safe region and high velocity diagram uh, however the amount of things which you need perceive and interpret is insane and this is where I thought that a machine would do better the machine would do better at the hover the machine would keep the position in the hover better the machine would make the trajectory better than myself it's great fun um, but the amount of safety margin available to me and my reaction speed is nowhere comparable to any basic 
computer. So to give a particular example is that uh, in these single engine helicopters, uh, if your engine fails, your rotor still keeps rotating, but you have 1.3 second to disconnect uh, the rotor from the engine so that you still have enough momentum in the rotor and you can still land. Mm -hmm. Obviously, if any engineer would tell you why would you have a human in this type of loop. Uh, and um, yeah, let me just post that. So for a small aircraft, I think there is insane um, niche, insane gap, which we are almost ready to fill in. And that's why we also have our company who is exactly trying to make the breakthrough in this particular area. Got it. And so I I remember I, I read a book once a long time ago about the you need to be at the right place at the right time, especially when it comes to technology. Usually it's a convergence of many different technologies that come together and allow what it could have been a dream, I don't know, 10 years, 20 years ago, somebody that had a vision for to make it happen. So I guess I'm going to go with uh, with Debbie here of computer power in the last 10 years, you know, just multiplies and multiplies. We do, we're looking at things now that really we feel like we, we just forwarded into the future. Is that what was needed? What else do, do we need and how do we present this to the users and say, look, it really is, like Anna said, much safer maybe if you just let it run by the computers. So when you're looking at putting computers on board these, you know, small aerial vehicles, and, and generally speaking, we refer to them as vertical takeoff and landing or electric, um, you know, most of the industry is moving towards electric um, aircraft. And so, you know, shorthand would be eVTOL. So as you're looking at these systems, they're not they're, they're very small, relatively speaking, when you compare that to a Boeing 737 MAX or an Airbus 330, are, these are very small systems. And so they're going to be challenged from a size, weight, and a power perspective. So, you know, if they're electric powered, then that means the amount of uh, power that, that, the, that the system can draw has to be scaled down from what, you know, a large aircraft can handle. And so as we've seen uh, Moore's law affect the silicon industry, where our power, um, our size and our weight of, of the chips are getting smaller and smaller and smaller, at the same time, we're seeing the performance per watt increase. And so that's what's allowing us to realize some of these new architectures. Um, and the other thing is when, when you're looking at these systems, whether it's um, an AI co-pilot on board a regular aircraft or an AI co-pilot on board one of these eVTOLs, the ability to take in information, so synthesize data coming in from multiple cameras, from multiple radar systems, and, and to be able to process that data requires a huge amount of processing power. So, and you need to be able to take that data in and synthesize it and fuse it together to build essentially a digital picture and a reliable digital picture of the surrounding environment in which, in which you find yourself flying. And, and the, the fact that the processors have become smaller, requiring less power, uh, requiring you know less um, uh, a smaller board effectively to host that processor, as well as that increase in the performance on those systems because we aren't standing still. Each time we get smaller, we actually get more powerful from a from a performance perspective. That's what's allowing this innovation right now. Yeah, That's and then really back cool. up. I got my more and more t-shirt on after Gordon Moore, <laughs> one of the founders of Intel. Um, there you go. By accident, by the way. Um, you know, by yeah, exactly sure. That, that, that from a, per, uh, a computing perspective. And then there's also just the explosion of computer vision. And, and that's tied as well to the computing, right? And so there was a time where computer vision, you just could not process enough 
you know, at the size, weight and power. And then suddenly there's this hockey stick of, you know, being able to leverage neural networks um, in order to do what used to be done with trigonometry um, and, you know, and these traditional methods where you, you really needed to know and be able to identify an edge very, very clearly. And, and now with, you know, neural networks, that was a part of what has enabled um, this capability that we have. So, so can we run a parallel? And I'd like all of you to jump in if, if, uh, if you got something to say. Because I'm thinking people may be thinking, okay, autonomous car. You know, we heard about that for a long time. And then now, you know, autonomous, pretty much everything. And you think about the environment where they operate at least for what I know and talking with many people, the car could already and already does a lot of things on its own. It may not be level five, but, you know, it's pretty good. I mean, I have a car that I can trust to keep the distance on the highway. But you're on two dimension. Now I come into the airplanes and, and the flying object, uh, drone and, and helicopter, whatever they are, then you're working with another dimension. So it's hard not to think about a, a sci-fi movie, like, I don't know, The Fifth Element or whatever, that you or Star Wars for what it is, The Mandalorian, where you can see flying things one on top of the other, almost like highway. So maybe, Yamaya, let's start with you. What, what is going to look like this thing? And is it easier to have autonomous flying versus cars? Yeah, so I probably can speak more about um, the problem statement that is ahead between uh, flying cars and and aircraft. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the, the aircraft problem statement is basically that whatever I can see, I don't want to fly into unless I want to <laughs> land on it. Makes sense. <laughs> right. And so I don't have to know the difference between a paper bag and a pedestrian mm, um, okay. or a plastic bag or a pedestrian. Right. And so you're you are necessarily in isolated space um, when you're in the air. So the problem statements of, is, is quite different in, in the way that you leverage the technology is quite different. But I think maybe from a pilot perspective, I would pass that on to Anna to talk about, you know, what what are you going to see when you're in the air and you're piloting in the future? Well, uh, I'm sure we're going to see more confident and more and safer landings because landing is basically your primary job as a pilot and that's the only safe state which is available to you in flying. So we tend to believe that actually uh, flying itself is much simpler robotics problem than uh, driving and you indeed need to have uh, way less semantic understanding of what is happening. But the semantic understanding is critical for landing. And starting from where the wind is coming from and uh, um, both the geographical, physical, and uh, human markings and semantics of the uh, environment, uh, of the airports, uh, and of the landscape, uh, and also of the obstacles on the ground. Uh, that's the primary thing which you need to worry about. Uh, so that, again, is done much easier by um, the uh, processes which we have now rather than with, rather than uh, the brain of the human. Uh, so for example, we are definitely uh, overperforming already a human and uh, seeing other obstacles because a human pilot sees only 12% of what they're supposed to see, what would be good for them to see. So most of the pilots are not even aware of the threats which are flying around them. Uh, and uh, even our some of our products, uh, we can show much better performance already. So that's not even a bar to be compared to. Um, and that opens up the possibility, of course, of having more aircraft in the air. So currently, for example, in instrument, instrumental meteorological conditions, you can only have one helicopter above, uh, above the central London. And uh, that's not practical for economic purposes. Of course, there may be other factors such noise and um, uh, if you want pollution, there's additional restrictions. Uh, but if we are moving into the evitals, then the density can increase and there is no reason to restrain it further. Um, and ability to uh, do search and rescue operations. 
so that's actually the primary request from uh, people who are doing uh, uh, these type of operations in the mountains, can you give us something which we wouldn't be afraid to crash if we have to fly in marginal weather? Uh, uh, so uh, switching a little bit to risky operations when we, are, uh, when we still can help people, also the transportation between hospitals and things like that. And so I think the challenges between automated cars and and then the you know sort of automated air vehicles are different when you think about it. So when you look at an automated car driving around, and I live in Chandler, Arizona, and and we happen to be kind of the ground zero for Waymo um, automated driving, and I've actually been in well, a car, um, a Waymo car, without a driver in the front seat. So when you think about the challenge faced there. We have automated cars driving on the same streets as humans. And we can make our automated cars very deterministic. So, you know, they're always going to, if, if there's a human near the road, they're going to wait and see what that human's going to do. You can't rely with a human driving a car to do the same thing. So humans driving cars introduce, I mean, it's not like it's new, humans driving cars are unpredictable and somewhat unreliable. So we have an automated car, which is pretty predictable, fairly reliable, interacting with very unpredictable and unreliable other drivers on the road. And when you start looking at an air system, you know, some of the EV tolls for an air ambulance or search and rescue or air taxis, now that that, that sort of unpredictable human is taken out of the loop because we aren't starting there. We aren't starting with a human piloting the EV tall by themselves. We're starting at a place where the human is piloting that EV tall with AI assistance. And, and now we've got, you know, the possibility of vehicle to vehicle um, communication so that one taxi can talk to an ambulance and, and we can have that conversation between those vehicles, um, leveraging AI and inferencing to understand what's going on around them that you don't have the benefit for when you're looking at a system that's driving the streets where you know, we can't have this automated car talking to this person's car because they just fundamentally don't have the same architecture within them. Yeah, and even in the airspace today in the U.S., um, every aircraft has to have an ADS-B that says, hi, I'm here. Um, and so it, it's, you know, all the time there already is some kind of communication between the two. And in fact, um, it, which is a great segue into our first product that is uh, currently in the process of being certified with the FAA, concurrently validated with the EASA. And it is uh, a system that is a traffic collision avoidance system or traffic awareness system. And um, it provides both cooperative and non-cooperative traffic awareness. So your systems today um, pick up a, you know, they, 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 uh, communicate with transponders from other aircraft. But what about birds? What about um, gliders? What about hot air balloons coming from China? Um, right? Our system, because it's, it's a, it's a vision-based system, it's a passive system, it sees everything around and it also is an input into this traffic awareness system that says, hi, I'm here too. I'm a bird. Well, you know, that makes sense to me. And also, there is the entire ethical perspective. We want to bring it to this table. But, you know, it makes me think that sometimes when we have the trolley dilemma for the car, you know, which one of the, if I have to kill someone, who am I going to kill? And we go very philosophical in that. And I'm like, are we expecting a little too much from AI? Like, maybe we're even expecting too much from human that they're like, do you really think they're making that decision in a friction of a second or a fraction of a second but you know that's an all different story but i i understand that the 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 difference between having an environment that is built for this particular kind of interaction between the different elements as you were explaining while on the street of i don't know florence where i'm from you know, it, it, the street made for horses and carriage, 
and not even big ones. So, you know, then you drive a big car in there is a problem. In L.A., eh, not a problem. The, the, the streets are big, there's traffic and so on. So I, I think one of the big barriers um, for adoption, it is actually that you will need to rebuild the infrastructure for for all of this. And, I, and is there a problem as well in coordinating everybody in the aerospace industry? Um, <laughs> well, we were actually thinking when we started the company, we were thinking, yes, it would be very nice if the infrastructure for the new aircraft is different from, from the legacy aircraft. But given the uh, rate of the evolution of the aviation industry, uh, we couldn't bet on it. So from the day one, we were thinking that our product should seamlessly work in, uh, in the mix of the human pilots and the automated pilots. Uh, because the only automation which came uh, through the regulation in the recent decades was, for example, the automated tape which reads you the weather forecast. That's the level of the change of the infrastructure. Uh, that's the, the, like the major change what happened. Um, so we should be able to uh, understand the uh, traffic constructors, read back the uh, um, clearances and uh, make sense of what they're saying, make, say, make sense of what other people are saying. But And of course, correlate that with the actual behavior, what is observed from the camera on the other aircraft. But the interesting bit, what I also wanted to mention in connection and what um, uh, Debbie mentioned, the unpredictability of the world around. So this is actually the novel point on which we are working with the regulators. Uh, because the world is inherently unpredictable. So we can write our software in a way we can run, uh, which guarantees that there are very few bugs. We can uh, run all the possible tests, um, satisfying the software, best software writing practices and the aviation regulation requirements. Uh, but there will be still some uncertainty in the world out there. So how do we quantify it? How do we make sure that uh, we actually, uh, within the safety boundary, within the quantified safety margins which we established for ourselves, uh, how do we stay there? So that's, um, uh, in addition to the performance of the computers which we have, that's another, uh, that's the complement part of the breakthrough uh, which we are trying to make uh, so that we know we develop the mathematical apparatus basically to be able to do it. And these things together then uh, would produce the uh, product, if you want, which uh, gives you the performance um, um, on par with human when it makes sense or better when it makes more sense. Wow. Can we give some concrete, like case study scenarios or where you have tested so far or where where you see like the, the vertical, the industry? I mean, I, I can make some guesses. You already went to search and rescue, transportation of medical. I mean, they're already using it. I know that there is, you know, in the Swiss Alp, I know, Anna, you're in Zurich, the Swiss Alp. I mean, we're already using drone to to detect and, and find, you know, maybe after an avalanche or, or anything like that. But for the everyday life, can I get some, some example of where you're focusing first in applications? Uh, Yamaya, to start with you, and then Deborah and... Yeah, well, I think the bigger one is where we started on this 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 emerging urban air mobility market that is really trying to transport people from one side of the city to the other side of the city. Um, so, in the future, and in in what we hope is not the the long the distant future, um, you'll be able to go into say your Uber app and pick where you want to go and it'll give you an option for or, or maybe even google maps and it'll give you an option you know where it gives you the you can walk you can take a bus you can um you know ride a train for instance you'll have a, a little icon that has an aircraft and then you know you you'll be able to get point to point service that might mean that i get picked up in front of my house the, the uh, car takes me to my local spot where I, you know, take an elevator to the top of a building. It flies me across the city to another building. I go down 
and or, or another hangar and I go down to there's another car waiting for me and it takes me to work. That's, that's do you so let, let me inter, let me interrupt on this. Like, do you see this yeah. to be the first application or because I'm I'm kind of thinking isn't it easier to start with? Okay, we can do emergency transportation. We can yes. start with that because I mean I I can see that a bigger vision yep. than yeah, okay, absolutely. let's start with specific application. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and you're right there. Urban air mobility, I think ultimately it it requires so much. You're talking about regulatory change, you're talking about infrastructure um, needs to be bolstered. We're gonna see bills that are large infrastructure bills, um, maybe even bigger than uh what was the recent one last year in the US. Um Interesting. I was working on that one and I can't remember the name of it, um, but they're going to be large infrastructure bills that are going to, you know, pass down and going to turn into smart cities and smart mobility bills mm -hmm. at the city level, the state, local government level in order to enable urban air mobility. And I think ultimately that's going to take a while. Um, but where there's so much headroom for um, safety is in, say, safe search and rescue where they are operating in environments that are so hazardous that, you know, sometimes it's like a marvel that, that you end up living <laughs> through, through the experience, right? That's where we believe that there will be, um, where we'll see this first. And, you know, we talk about, I've, I've heard you say multiple times about AI being in, in uh, aerospace, but honestly, it's not. Aerospace is, is a market in safe systems, in safe aerospace systems, vehicle systems. It's a market that adopts technology on decades later than the technology is available. So as an example, um, Debbie and I, we work together very closely at Intel. I started Intel's offerings in safety critical avionics, and I was blown away in 2017 when I started working on that to learn that um, by that time, uh, multi-core processors were in commercial electronics for almost two decades, and still there had not been a system like a flight control system that implemented, that had gotten approved to implement multi-core processors. And in systems that still do, in most cases, you know, you, you hear dual core, we're up to quad core or more. Um, in, in these systems, in the highest safety level um, or highest safety criticality systems, they disable all but one core. And, and it's really because of what Debbie talked about, determinism and being able to manage the resources that are competing with the with the uh, like memory or cores that are competing with the resources like memory um, and cash. So AI or more specifically machine learning still has not been certified to go into aircraft. And that's what the daily and um, that's one of the many challenges and a means to an end for us to achieve in order to get there. And we do believe that we will be the first company to do that. Uh, Debbie, so. I think. Why Anna oh, yeah. Or Anna, that's sure. I'll, I'll keep well, my question I, for Debbie later. Anna, go ahead. Uh, I just wanted to make a little remark on the use cases to the initial question. Uh, so we do actually have. Um, already an offering for the flight schools, because when people are uh, learning to fly, they are very much interested in the feedback. And the maximum which you would usually get from your instructor is, okay, it was a good landing, but you don't know the details. So people are recording their tracks uh, through the GPS, for example, while our system, uh, which runs in parallel, can immediately tell you how much you are deviating from the ideal slope, for example. Or alternatively, while you are trying to focus on the landing, our system can help you look out for the other traffic and the other aircraft. Got it. Okay, mm -hmm. this actually connects wonderfully to, to what I was going to ask to Debbie, which is, um, I mean, you're always pushing ahead, obviously at Intel with you know the quad core and and everything possible, and then you find some kind of walls, which may be regulation, maybe ad adoption. Um, so, how do you think we can improve on this? I mean, are we, we, do we need to take? I'm putting this in. Uh, 
in air quote for people listening, um, risk taking a little bit more? Do we need to facilitate regulation? I mean, how can we actually get to the point that regulators are comfortable, companies are comfortable, security of the system, it's, you know, it's as pair as human, let's say, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of going in a utopian. And then there's sure. a dystopian where everybody's scared of everything. We're not going to go anywhere. <laughs> or everybody yeah. just trusts everything because there's blinking light and funny noises. And yeah, yeah, let's just put it on a plane. Let's see what happens. So is there a balance yeah, there? I, um, I think it depends on what value you place on a person's life, right? Because when we're looking at an aircraft as compared to a car, you know, when there's a car accident, the number of casualties is, you know, relatively small. But when you look at an airplane, when there's a catastrophic incident there, the loss of life is is pretty major. You know, it's a it's a very big impact on, you know, not just the families, but you know, the the you know, it's the whole ecosystem, right? It's, you know, it's the pilot's families, it's the crew's families, it's a really big impact. And so there's a reason for these things to kind of take a while to work through the system because there's a lot of um, risk being assumed by the aircraft manufacturers to ensure that people are arriving at their destination safely. So, you know, the, what, we're, what you see is the industry is very slow to move because they want to see the evidence that this next innovation is going to allow them to continue their mission in transporting people safely from one point to another. And so, I mean, what we need is to be able to have the evidence, collect the evidence, which is collected over years and years and years of a device's ability to meet that mission or a system's ability to meet that mission. And it just takes a long time to get there. Um, you could see maybe there's another opportunity to introduce, you know, some machine learning in order to do some kind of Pareto on an architecture to decide, you know, what's the chances that this architecture is going to fail in operation. I mean, there are other opportunities there to accelerate that sort of usage cycle. But, you know, when you when you step back and think about it in human terms, I'm not sure it's really moving that slowly. You know, I mean, for me at Intel, you know, I've got companies that are just now adopting my 11th generation processors. Well, we just introduced our 14th generation processors. So, you know, it, it's it's slow from my perspective at Intel where we move at light speed. But if I look at it from my personal perspective, I'm not sure it moves that slow, you know? Mm, yeah. It's a matter of perspectives here, for sure. <laughs> um, one last question. So we see, we talk about infrastructure. We talk about, mm, you know, application. I can imagine many more commercial application. Can think just like, I mean, I'm going to say Amazon. I'm not advertising, of course. So always people talking about it. But, you know, that's, that's a good example, delivery of goods. Uh, I remember years ago there was some kind of uh, – Leonardo da Vinci kind of uh, flying machine that was supposed to be the the headquarter of I mean the, the yeah pretty much the gateway in 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 air or in space of Amazon distributing package to everyone so there is that but then it makes me think apart from from you know the sci-fi way of thinking um, the the globality of our commerce and the way that airplanes, of course, need to uh, connect people in different part of the world, and so you know it's in, it's important to look at a at a commercial uh, and and a market that is global, and that we're trying, despite all the problem in the in our society, to connect because if something breaks, as we've seen during the pandemic, it breaks there, it breaks everywhere, right? Are other companies, are other, you know, around the world that are working on this same solution? And how is people collaborating? I'm a big fan of collaboration. It's Is there a future there? Yeah, I, I'd say absolutely. And in fact, um, we are solving a problem 
in taking what I believe is a pretty unique position in solving that problem. There are folks that like Debbie that are developing, you know, higher performance computing capabilities that companies like us then take and we turn, we develop boards, we develop systems, we add software to it, you know, from the, the low level software to middleware all the way up to the application layer in order to build insights. And, um, you know, what we, which we call situational intelligence. And then we support folks that are developing airframes. So those airframes, um, they're, they're going from um, airframes that had been, you know, uh, larger airframes, but now you're talking about holding, carrying one or two to four people. And so, the electronic systems or avionic systems have to be converged. And so we're seeing more where a single processor needs to run, say, our navigation system, plus your controls, not generally, they're still air gap controls, but your navigation, plus your displays, plus your comms, as an example, right? And all of these have to come together all the way up to the application layer. So um, we are partnering not only with suppliers like Intel Corporation that are developing the ingredients and the, the components that make this happen, um, as well as say the scientific and the, um, the, uh, uh, so the computer science community that is continuing to make headway in developing artificial intelligence, neural networks, and um, in other algorithms and computer vision. Um, and then the, the airframers directly all the way out to the operators. And the operators or the end users are the ones that are generating the pull and the need. And so we have to partner to make sure that as we develop our systems and the software, we are working with the end users who will be using that, right? If our systems are gonna be seen from a pilot, it's very important that we have people like Anna on our staff who can empathize and who knows, you know, is this going to be a distraction or is this actually helpful to me? Right. So in order for us to be successful, it's all about partnerships. Great. And talking about Anna there, I see there is a guest. I don't know if people are watching the <laughs> video, but has joined. <laughs> there you go. So <laughs> are we looking at a, a future pretty soon that this is going to happen so that your little guest there can, can fly in autonomous? <laughs> like to go from one, one place of the city to another? I mean, what, what do you guys think the time frame will be for actually see this happen? I'm just curious. You know, go ahead, Anna. Well, when we started the company, we were thinking that it should definitely happen before our retirement. Otherwise, what's the point? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'll, I'll say to add on to that, um, if this were solely a, a technological problem, we would be there already. Um, right. you know, but really, we are doing this. We Our company has had to develop the theory for certifying neural networks just so that we can ensure and, and, and coining a term learning assurance um, in order to ensure that um, these can go into systems and into safe systems. And, and so when you are thinking about that, right, we have to consider the intended use of machine learning. And um, so it'll be a while. I think it's more of a regulatory and, and just ensuring that um, folks are safe. That's, that's our highest priority always. Yeah, yeah. We, we also have a, you know, a societal hurdle to over, you know, mm -hmm. to kind of overcome, because I think even today you hear people who say they would never step foot in an autonomous car and, and kind of now we're asking them to step foot in, you know, even if it's piloted, a piloted small vehicle, not, you know, not a great big aircraft, but a smaller one. So, you know, there's also that influence, the societal influence that, that we need to, um, that we need to have in order to help them understand that, you know, these are all the things we're doing to make sure that you'll be safe in this aircraft. And it's all these things that Yamaya and Anna have spoken about, the 
you know, we're, we're working hard to make sure these systems will be as safe as possible so that you will successfully get from one point to another, even if all you're doing is hopping across the city. And to wrap on this, I mean, I've, of course, I love that you got into the societal aspect because that gets really complicated. I mean, if I remember well, the first cars didn't even have brakes. and Nobody really cares at the time. There was no regulation for cars in the city. It was really a blind move there. And of course, there is an early adopter. There is the one that wait. There is the one that you know are going to jump on later on. But I, I am sure that technology is running really fast. But I also want to be positive and think that we're taking our steps. Um, plus, we're under everybody eyes. I mean, look at chat GPT and is that good? Is it bad? And that doesn't really hurt anyone. I mean, in terms of physical (laughs) hurting, Uh, but it's up there. I never heard talking about ethics and philosophical aspect of technology as much as in the past five five years. Um, So it's in the conversation. I really appreciate uh, this conversation and having three unbelievable people that just taught me so much. And I hope that the audience got that and get motivated to learn more, to look more into this and be ready for for a future. So I want to thank you very, very much, Anna, Yamaya, and and Debbie, Deborah, for being part of this conversation. And uh, and I hope that our listener will walk away with a lot of questions in their head, more than answers, because that's when I feel we've done something good use their brain think about the future and be part of it so again thank you very much thank, thank you, you. and i a encourage still everyone to fly while humans <laughs> better than muskins there you go there you go that comes from a pilot so i'll kind of trust that <laughs> goodbye everybody stay tuned on itsp magazine and subscribe why not if you enjoy this there's much more coming take care Oh, there she is. Hi. (laughs) Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.